And good afternoon. It's 4 o'clock. Thanks for tuning in to CFRC 101.9 FM. We are located here in Lower Carruthers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce. This is Finding a Voice, spoken word programming here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6 o'clock. We do stream live online as well at www.cfrc.ca. And coming up on the show today, in the first hour from a March 7th, a bookstore reading featuring four Anana authors uh, and celebrating and honoring, I guess, International Women's Day, which was last Friday. So that was the evening before. You'll hear readings by Ursula Flug, uh, Mary Lou Dickinson, and Lisa D. Nicolitz. And in the second hour, and continuing with that reading event, you'll hear a reading by Elizabeth Green, who was that evening's MC as well. And then there was a Q&A that followed uh, the reading. So that first, and then to finish up the hour from uh, the January 8th and the Journey Continues open mic reading event, uh, I'll share a few more. Uh, we've been doing this for a few weeks now. I'll share a few more readings. These by Alyssa Cooper. Kinman, Eric Folsom, and Sasha Hill. This first, though, just the usual hourly announcement. Occasionally, some poetry, spoken word, or music played on this show may contain strong language, but it's all played in its entirety with content unedited to honor the creative integrity of both the author and the piece. And so I should have, I believe, maybe more so in the second hour, should have a bit of time today to share a few upcoming uh, calls for submissions and events. So let's go ahead. Up first, again, from the March 7th, uh, for Inanna Author Reading Event at Novel Idea and uh, honoring International Women's Day, and as emceed by Elizabeth Green, You'll hear first in it her introduction, and then, and then her to both the event I should say, and then also to the first reader who was Ursula Flug, a reading from her book called Mountain. Well, well, welcome to Inanna's International Women's Day reading. And I can't speak for myself, but we have three other wonderful authors, you know, You're re too. <laughs> re reading Cracker Jack books. And even though we have read with one another at various points before, you know, this particular combination has not happened before and probably won't happen again for quite a while unless we decide to take this show on the road, which I don't like. Uh, so I, so I, I especially want to thank Lisa and Ursula and Mary Lou for coming from Toronto and Peterborough, um, Ursula from Peterborough, Lisa and Mary Lou from Toronto. Um, I've only come from William Street, so <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not thanking myself. Thank uh, you. Thank you. There's a couple of chairs over here if anybody comes in and they want to walk in. Um, and I have I have some other thanks before we start. Um, uh, you know, this is almost. A ritual. Thanks very much to Oscar and Novel Idea for welcoming us always. <laughs> um, um, thanks, Joanna, for 
the lovely tapas and one, you know, one for International Women's Day, which is so beautiful that it's it's hard to take a piece, but some people have, so so the rest of you can after the reading. Um, thanks to Bruce for helping to publicize this and recording it, um, and just you know, generally making poetry better in Kingston and also keeping us from having conflicts because he holds <laughs> all the strings in his hand. <laughs> um, okay, and thank all of you for coming out on quite a cold March night and I you know I trust the readings will warm you up. Okay. I'm feeling as if I'm right on top of you. So those, the, the, those are the thanks. Then we're going, um, each of us are going to read for 15 minutes or slightly less. I'm going, I know I'm going to read slightly less. And then there'll be a, um, a question and answer period and then people can also question and answer informally after we break up. Okay, so Ursula Flug is going to start and You've got her bio on the poster. She's written short stories for, for years. Um, she's written lots of speculative fiction. The three books I've read of hers I just <coughs> love. And it's lovely to have her here in Kingston. So please welcome Ursula Fluke. Go behind so I can use that to lean. Yeah. I, um, well, I, I got to say that I, I felt as if I was going to start tromping on people's toes being in front. <laughs> being so close, yeah. yeah. It's, in, it's intimate, though, to be close. Well, it's pretty intimate, even pretty behind. <laughs> <laughs> Plus, we can pretend it's the, the actual podium. Yeah. So, thank you, Elizabeth. Um, for organizing, and I also would like to thank Renee, who's not here, who's our publicist, uh, and Nana, who is the most, I've worked with a lot of uh, small presses over my writing career, and I'm always amazed that at Nana we have <coughs> Renee, <laughs> who is just the most wonderful human being, but also so competent. So, so all of these events have Renee all over them, right? So, and thank you also very much. And Bruce, as always, Bruce is the superhero of, <laughs> <laughs> of writing in in Kingston. And for several years, I ran a reading series in the village I live in outside of Peterborough. So that was where I met Bruce. Was he came and read his poetry there a few times. So um, coming here and seeing Bruce and Elizabeth and Sandra, it feels a bit like visiting family. <laughs> um, I'm going to read from this book, which is a, it's a YA novella. And while a couple of my previous books have been YA adult crossover, this was the first one that was officially YA. And it was, uh, part of Inanna's Young Feminist line. So um, like a lot of my work, it's speculative fiction. It's a near future Cly apocalypse. <laughs> um, and um, it, it uh, was a finalist for the Sunburst, which is Candace 
Speculative Fiction Award and also got all kinds of lovely reviews in the States, so that was, of course, heartening. Um, it takes place at a gathering on Mount Shasta in Northern California. The teenage protagonist, Camden, goes there with her mom, Laureen. Um, Laureen is a hardware geek and sets up packet radio and water purification <coughs> and email and so on at the gatherings, which have begun to proliferate in the wake of the Cly apocalypse. So there's a lot of skills sharing workshops that happen as infrastructure starts to break down. Um, so Laureen leaves for San Francisco to look for an old lover and she doesn't come back. Camden is 17, she doesn't have any money, she can't get hold of her mom because there's no service on the mountain. She makes friends with Skinny, who's just a few years older than she is and heads the security detail. And he gets her work in the outdoor kitchen, helping to make dinner to feed hundreds and on construction and so on. And she's injured while working on a sun shelter, at which point she decides to collect people's stories. There's a couple of thousand people at the gathering. Who are they? Where did they come from? My editor suggested I include some of the stories she collects. This was Luciana, the br our brilliant editor. And I was happy to agree because that was part of my original plan for the book several iterations ago. <coughs> so the one I'm going to read is called Looking for Sophia, and it first appeared in the literary magazine Room under the title Lydia. So it's not the uh, MC's voice. It's not Cam's voice. It's the voice of one of the women whose stories she has collected. Um, and there may or may not be a sequel. I haven't decided yet. But if so, Camden will continue to collect stories which will be interspersed with the main narrative because it was one of the aspects of the book that really resonated for people. <clears throat> Here, look at these pictures. I shouldn't be using up my battery to show you pictures, but it's not like I can call anyone from here anyway, right? This is the squat where me and Kenny and Sophia lived, back before things heated up and I ran away to San Francisco. We had a good time living here, the three of us. But we were innocent then, if I think back on it. We didn't know how much worse it could get. We didn't know we could lose, even those homes we'd made out of garbage. We didn't know yet the people we knew could die. I heard Kenny was dead, but then I was hearing that about him when he was alive. You know, people like that who attract disaster. Sophia didn't attract disaster. She went looking, and then when it was almost on top of her, she'd duck and come out clean. She'd laugh at us for holding our breaths. It was a game she played. She was good at it too. I hope she's still as good at it. I guess I came to the mountain looking for her. I've been here, for, been here for three days now, and I only just realized I'm looking for Sophia. It's funny. Sometimes I think I see her. I see someone way across the meadow with long black hair, and I think it's her. There's a split second where I tell myself it's her. I tell myself she came because she could feel it. She could feel I was here. 
I catch myself thinking that all the time. If I stay here long enough, she'll know I'm here and she'll come to meet me. Things like that used to happen to me and Sophia all the time. We used to get our periods together. I remember this one time I went to Vancouver and our rhythms got out of sync. When I came back, she'd already had her period, but she had another one anyway, <laughs> just so she could have it at the same time as me. That was the kind of person she was. She'd have two periods in one month, just so you wouldn't have to be alone on yours. That takes a lot of heart, I figure. That's my international women's day quote. Night. Um, that takes a lot of heart, I figure, but she got so mad. To get even, she made me clean up her place. She lived across the street from me and Kenny then. It was back when there were still streets in that part of town, before we started up the squatters community. It's funny, you know, the things you remember about people. Like, if she were here now, she had her period, I'd know that's what I could do to make her happy. I'd clean up a space all around her, and then I'd make her tea and a tuna salad sandwich. She told me about how this one time Kenny walked in on her. It was 4 o'clock in the morning. She was in the kitchen, doubled over from cramps. Kenny walks in, gets himself a drink of water. He says, I'm so glad I'm not a woman. And he goes back to bed. It was around then she decided she didn't like him too, too much anymore. <laughs> <laughs> when I was sad, she always knew. She'd know, and she'd come and let me cry on her shoulder for as long as I wanted. I'm alone now. It's been that way for years. You travel, you meet people, you even live with some of them, but somehow you're still alone. Maybe people don't know how to take care of each other. Not anymore. They don't know how to run you a bath. They don't know how to keep an eye on you so you don't get too thinned out. I'm never with anyone now, including the people I've lived with, the way I was back then with Kenny and Sophia. Especially Sophia. But that, that was one of those things I didn't figure out till later. It's bad for you to live alone too long. You start seeing things, you start hearing things. Sometimes I go out on the street and I think all the people I see have rat faces. <laughs> but maybe that's not so strange. I've talked to other people who see the rat faces too. It is a little spooky though. Kenny knew her before I did. They were still lovers. even after he and I got together. It made me jealous, and I asked him to stop, and he did. But then later, she and I got to be best friends, and Kenny was mad. We used to sleep in each other's rooms, too, sometimes, and make love, Sophia and me, but we were best friends first. You're another kind of lover when you're best friends first. But that was something Kenny could never get. I would have been mad, too, if I was him. <coughs> she used to hold my head when I was crying about what a rat he was. I always wondered what would happen if Sophia and I lived just with each other with no one else around to bug us. 
there was always some guy she liked around, or Kenny, getting mad because we were having too much fun. When Sophia laughed, there wasn't much more I wanted, not in this world. Now it's far back enough. I'm trying to figure out what was going on all those years when we lived here. For the longest time, I couldn't figure out how I'd been dumb enough to spend four years with a moron like Kenny. <laughs> Sounds bad, but it's true. <laughs> then I realized that Sophia had been there the whole time, too. Oh, yeah, right, Sophia. It's weird how you can miss the really obvious things like that. It's kind of like living in the middle of the war and not knowing till later that that's why everything was so weird. When I left him, I lost her, too. It was almost like I could be with Sophia only if I was with Kenny at the same time. And, and I always wondered what it would be like if I was just with her. And now, now I'm not with anyone. And when I came to the gathering, I came looking. I think if I stay here long enough, she might show up. She always could tell what I needed. Like I never could. I never could with her. I never knew what she needed from me until I went back to the squat. So many years later, found nobody there. I stayed for a few days, just in case. Sometimes you didn't hear anything except the sounds of cars way out on the road. I'd sit on the porch and listen to the cars for hours. And then all of a sudden, I realized some part of me thought they were driving right through me. That's the end of the And thank you so much, Elizabeth, for emceeing, as well as everything else. Thank you, Ursula. That was wonderful. So now you, now you can all read the rest of the book. And you just heard uh, Ursula Plug. Uh, reading at uh, a March 7th uh, for in Nana author event, uh, reading event, I should say, uh, that was tied to International Women's Day and as emceed by Elizabeth Green. So up next in it, uh, here is Mary Lou uh, Dickinson reading from her book, The White Ribbon Man. So I've known Mary Lou Dickinson since we were at Banff together in 1992. So I've gotten to see her writing grow in time since, and that's been a great pleasure. Um, she, and she also led me into Inanna because her first book of short stories, One Day It Happens, um, was nominated for the Relit Award. But I came to her launch, and I met Luciana, and I thought, well, this might be a place where I could publish. So thank you. Um, and she's also, um, we also have Adele Wiseman in common. Um, Mary Lou knew her really well. I just knew her a little. But we talked about Adele at, at that during her last illness. Um, um, her other novels are Eel Door, which um, is amazing material and set up north in Mining Company where she grew up. 
and Would I Lie to You, which is a very deft novel with a lot of comic twists. Um, her current novel, The White Ribbon Man, is set in and around Holy Trinity Church. So if you've ever been there, you can walk right into the novel. And one of the pleasures of knowing writers, or even reading contemporary writers, is that often you can walk right into their novels, which is a joy. So please welcome Mary Lou Dickinson. Thanks, Elizabeth, and thank you to Oscar for hosting us, and to all of you for coming out on such a chilly evening. It's lovely to see so many people. Um, I want to show you first the cover of the book, The White Ribbon Man. It's my first mystery. It's my fourth book. Um, I think you might be interested in knowing that when this cover was sent to me, um, I thought, oh my goodness, red? heels. <laughs> that's not what she's wearing in, in the novel, but I loved them, so I went back into the text and changed them. <laughs> and I, you probably agree that these are much better than they <laughs> This washroom happens to be the washroom in the basement of the church in downtown Toronto, and if you don't know it by the name Elizabeth gave it, it's the one in behind the Eaton Centre, so in Toronto, even if someone doesn't know what it is, they know that church, and probably from Kingston many people do as well. Um, so my, uh, I, I wrote it as a challenge, in fact. I didn't even read many mysteries when the challenge was first issued to me. Um, this friend's writer friend suggested that I set a mystery with a body that was found in the basement of this church, and I thought, well, that sounds interesting. As long as it's not a child, I think I might be able to do it. Many years, many, many years later, it was finally published. Um, and he asked me at the time whether I would acknowledge him as the one who had the idea, which I have done in the book. I'm going to read two short sections. One, the first one is sh quite short, and I'll tell you the reason with each one why I'm going to to read them. The first one is because when I did a reading a um, few months ago in a in a town in southwestern Ontario, um, a woman came up to me afterwards, and we did have a Q and A, but she didn't raise it then, and she said, "I want to tell you how I choose the books I'm going to buy, or the ones I'm going to borrow if I'm in a library." She said, "I don't." Um, read reviews. I don't read the first page of a novel, which many people do, the first line or the first paragraph. Um, I don't read the blurbs on the back of the book. I go to page 30. <laughs> and if I like page 30, she said, you know, they haven't established too much, but they've gotten through a lot of boring introductions. <laughs> And they don't give away too much either. She said, then I read the book. And I thought, you know, I just said, oh, isn't that interesting? And I went home and I picked up my book and I went to page three. And I thought, oh my gosh, this works. So it, you know, it sort of covers enough that I hope it'll whet your appetite. And I will read another section after. I cheat a little. I take two lines from the bottom of page 29. <laughs> so... Oh yes, and I should say that you will um, 
get a little bit of the detective there here. And I apologize that at, for International Women's Day, it's a male detective, but I must tell you that it's a very diverse group of characters and there are some very strong women in it. <laughs> but this detective is male. His name is Detective Sergeant Jack Cosser. Another little story. Um, I could never remember the name of my detective, and I thought, this is not going to work, because I didn't know. People had never asked me for the names of my characters in, in other fiction. So I went home, and I thought, I've got to find a name I'll remember. So Cosser is my maiden name, and I've managed to remember that. <laughs> okay. Was there anyone here this morning who stood out as being unusual, Cosser had asked the minister. Just the regulars, I think, David had said thoughtfully. Although a couple of weeks ago, I recall noting a stranger with very red hair who wore a white ribbon on his lapel. A man. He hasn't returned, though. Cosser had not commented, wanting at this point only information that was directly related to the woman who was now the center of a police investigation. Nothing thus far dismissed the possibility of murder. Someone who had not been there that day seemed an unlikely candidate for a list of possible suspects or persons of interest who might know something about the dead woman, especially since the minister had said that as far as he knew, she was not someone who had regularly attended the church. When the reporter reached him, Cosser turned to shake his head. No information for the press yet. Murder, the reporter asked, reaching out a microphone. Not yet established, Cosser said. ID? No information for the press on that yet either. The reporter turned his camera to the people who were standing around as if comatose. Sooner or later he would get his story, Cosser knew. He would persist until he had something to put on the news. The discovery of a body was enough of a story for the first broadcast, with tantalizing bits being shared as more information, more information was uncovered. That was how these guys worked. They would hover and disappear and then hover again. At some point, the news coverage might prove useful to the police, as sometimes tips would ensue, but they were not at that point yet. Foster asked Linda the same question he had asked the minister and would ask the caretaker and eventually everyone who was there that morning. Had she seen anyone or anything unusual? Everything was unusual, Linda said. The woman beside her started to quiver again. No, if that whets your appetite, <laughs> that's page 30. Um, what I'd like to say is, though, that this person who went to page 30 missed some great blurbs on the back of the book. <laughs> yeah, there's one by our friend Lisa, and uh, I'm trying to see what it is. An, an insightful literary mystery, um, a poignant, touching exploration of human hopes and frailties. Uh, there's another one here that says, Mary Lou Dickinson deftly takes us into the world of a social justice community and their struggles to cope in the aftermath of violence. And that's actually what I was interested in, in, in writing it. Um, what does she say? This is a page turner with an unexpected plot twist that will leave the reader guessing until the very end. Now can you imagine if page 30 hadn't been that interesting, <laughs> what would have happened? There's another one that says, this is a book that will leave you thinking. Then there was one reviewer who said, where is that? I wrote it down. Just a line. Yeah. 
a highly enjoyable read. It offers some perceptive insights into the psychic ills of our times. Adroitly told who done it. Yeah, just a shame. I mean, I love these <laughs> blurbs. And I think that, you know, authors don't write blurbs for books they don't like. And it gives them a little bit of, you know, they, their name appears in a variety of places. So I think that it's something that we like to do when we have the time. And I think that when people read them, they do get some idea of the book. The next one I'm going to read is introduces you to one of the suspects. And there are many suspects. And I ask you to imagine how somebody with the particular characteristics of this person um, might, in fact, be suspected and might, in fact, act out something that would lead to being a suspect. I didn't read it at first because I thought, oh my gosh, I didn't want to suggest so early who this, um, who this suspect is. And. Uh, I did read it once recently, and people found it quite interesting, and I don't think it gives away, you know, who actually committed it, whether it's this person or somebody else, and uh, it just, I think, tantalizes a bit. So David is the minister. He's an interim minister at the church. He's a, an older person, so the interim part of it rather suits him, and he is there after one minister has left and while another one is being considered, so probably, you know, a year to two years. David wondered if his wife was feeling better. Anne had a bad case of the flu, but that was not why she had not been at Holy Trinity that morning. She rarely attended his church and had found another place to worship. The strong involvement of the congregation offended her. She did not want to be there only to see him sidelined, she said. Times had changed since they had their first parish in a small town where they lived in the rectory, and the congregation expected her to be a part of everything. In that town, the minister and his family's every step were carefully scrutinized. It's a wonder our marriage survived, he thought. Fortunately for his reputation, the sleepwalking seemed to have begun only in later years, although he'd had insomnia for as long as he could remember. David passed a sign on the sidewalk pointing up an alley to an organic market. He made his way through the covered stalls and bought a bag of green apples. Then he passed the church on the corner, crossed the street, and after walking east past a few buildings, he reached the Carrot Common. At the next street, he turned north toward the large brick house he and Anne rented. He did not know if they would remain in Toronto after he finished with his church. It might be time to retire, although he was not planning on that quite yet. The bishop had encouraged him to consider it, though, and ultimately it would be the bishop's decision. Perhaps he would be able to help out at another church somewhere in the diocese. As he climbed the wooden steps up to the porch, David wondered how much he would tell Anne about the events of the, at the church. He knew Anne would greet him before he even opened the front door. He could see her eyes gaze heavenward disdainfully. At this church, anything could happen, they seemed to say. But when he went inside, he saw that she was fast asleep on the sofa in the living room. It looked as if she had lain down for a moment and before she had known it, had fallen asleep. He tiptoed past her and entered the kitchen. <coughs> David, she murmured, is that you? Yes, my dear. I was up almost the whole night, she said. 
I'm sorry, he said. I must have slept right through, did I? Well, if you didn't wake up, you must have. She knew about his insomnia, but she did not know about the strange places he sometimes found himself when he walked out the door. Indeed, he hoped she thought he had simply decided to go for a stroll, quite intentionally. Not even any strolls, he said. No, you scarcely moved a limb. Thank God for that, he thought. He did not want to tell her that she might have to be his alibi. But he decided he'd better tell her that the police might drop by. Why? Most unfortunately, he said, down in the cavern of the church this morning, we found a dead woman in the washroom, and it seems likely that she was murdered. Good Lord, she said. Yes, he said, indeed. What could the good Lord have been thinking, although what better place to die than in a church? On the other hand, he had always thought he would like to die in his own bed, surrounded by his wife and children and all the people who loved him. Do they have any idea what happened, she asked the police. They aren't saying yet. Well, thank heavens you weren't sleepwalking last night. So you know. Of course I know, she said. Do you remember the time your wallet turned up a week after you couldn't find it? Well, some man brought it over. He said he had enjoyed chatting with you in a donut shop and that you'd left the wallet on the counter there. I know you never go into donut shops. I know you hate them. I know from what he said that you wouldn't even have known you were having the conversation. So she knows everything, he thought. In some ways, she knew more than he did. He wondered why he had been visited with this particular affliction. Insomnia was one thing, but living a separate life in one's sleep was another. He had no idea about what he had done then. But he was very grateful that now he could be certain that he had nothing to do with the woman in the basement of the church. What about Friday night, he asked. <coughs> I couldn't tell you, she said. I slept through. But I suspect you did too, because there were none of the telltale signs that are there when you've been out somewhere. Like, like what? Uh, crumbs in the kitchen? Tim Horton's bag in the garbage? Jam jar on the counter? Front door unlocked? Lights on, I know I turned off the night before? Television or radio on? Oh, he said, so all this time you've known and not said anything. Why not? I don't know, she said. I think I kept hoping I was dreaming. Thank you, Mary Lou. So, you know, page 30, page 60, page 90. Just, just open the book and see, see what it is. And you just heard uh, Mary Lou Dickinson reading at uh, a March 7th uh, reading event that featured four Inanna authors uh, and uh, in a celebration of uh, International Women's Day the following day. And as emceed by Elizabeth Green, tell you what, up next in it, here is Lisa De Nicolets reading from her book, Rotten Peaches. I consider Lisa De Nicolets one of Inanna's flagship authors. I mean, she's, you know, she's, she does a lot. She's everywhere. She, she writes book after book, and they're all page turners, and they're all good. Huh? Um, um, this, 
this one has characters so bad that it's a, th it's a thrill to read it. <laughs> um, uh, but if I were teaching it, I would point out the difference between the author who holds the whole thing in her hands and the characters who go their own ways. <laughs> and it's, you know, it's, it's the author that keeps the book clear-sighted because the characters aren't really. <laughs> uh, uh, okay, so Lisa's heroines are very spunky, resilient, and resourceful. She's great on groups, although there aren't too many groups in this novel. Um, and she's also got very satisfyingly evil villains, which is a talent right there. Um, her, um, her last, not this novel, but her last novel, No Fury Like That, is being published this year in Italian, which is, you know, yay. Um, so it's a pleasure to have her here in Kingston. Please welcome Lisa to I just want to say thank you everyone for coming. This is a fabulous bookstore and this is just wonderful. So thank you very much. And Inanna isn't just a publishing house. Inanna is a community. And I think I submitted my first book to them in 2008 and have never looked back because it's just, it's such a, like sometimes I'll post the Republic of Inanna because I really <laughs> feel like that's who we are. We're really supportive um, of each other, which is, a, which is an amazing thing. Um, it's kind of odd that, you know, International Women's Day, and I have two of the most evil women <laughs> on the planet. <laughs> so a recent, I did a blog tour very recently, and the first review that popped up said, I have never hated characters this much in my life, but I couldn't put the book down. So I emailed our publisher, Luciana, and I'm like, what should I do with that? And she's like, it's brilliant, post it. So I was like, okay. And then another strange thing was that the Toronto Star had it on a buy for Valentine's Day. <laughs> One of the strangest things in my life. But I was like, no, that's good. I'll go with that. Um, so I'm going to read... So there's two female protagonists, Leonie, and she's set in Canada, and then there's Bernice, who's in South Africa. And I'm going to read a, a piece from both of them. And this one, we are, um, we are with, with Leonie. Potassium cyanide. That was the first time I used it. <laughs> I mixed the powder with my father's steel-cut oatmeal, hoping that cooking wouldn't lessen the efficacy of the poison but I needn't have worried. And I knew my mother was in no danger. She cooked his breakfast, but she didn't like oatmeal. And I left that same night to go back to university. And the following night, my mother called me. My father had died. <laughs> he was fine at breakfast, and he'd gone to his cabin as usual. But when he didn't return for supper, she grew concerned and went to find him. And when she opened the door, he was lying sprawled on the floor, dead. Heart attacks run in his family, she said, and she was crying. I don't know what I'm going to do with myself now. He was all I had. Well, gee, thanks, Mom. <laughs> Her words made me sorry that she didn't eat oatmeal. <laughs> While she had rejected me for what I'd done, she'd never hurt me as badly as my father had. And of course I had known about the family tendency on my father's side for heart failure at a young age. 
And while my mother had no regard for what she called my lack of moral standing, <laughs> she clearly saw no link between my out-of-the-blue visit and my father's sudden death. I returned home for the funeral and I put flowers on his grave and I stood by my mother's side while the priest prayed for my father's soul that I wondered if in his dying moments that my father realized he had been murdered by his dirty little girl and I certainly hoped so. <laughs> so that gives us a little taste of, uh, of Leonie, who was perhaps one of the most fun characters to write ever. I just, I just love her to pieces. <laughs> then we moved to a farm in South Africa. It's a, um, sort of a small holding. sits actually in a fictional place because my family had um, a couple of hectares just near around the Sani Pass, which is near Lesotho. But I also grew up in what is now called Gauteng, but was called Transvaal. So I fictionally merged uh, the two places that I love most in South Africa and I created this farm, which I'd love to return to, except that it never really ever existed. <laughs> <laughs> but you know how somehow you think one day you can. So this is Bernice and she is on the farm. I sink down to my haunches and look around. The farm is very quiet. The old windmill creaks and turns against a clear blue sky and the felt grasses rustle with the heat. And I smell the dusty red sand and the air is perfect. A few crickets chirp and a bird calls, pick me fro, pick me fro, and I smile. It's a red-chested cuckoo. And that's when I realize how very alone I am. That no one knows I'm here. None of the farmers or the people in the town. And I stand up, dizzy from the sudden movement, and there's a blackness to my vision, and my heart flutters in my chest like a tiny trapped bird. I gather myself and run across the yard into the kitchen, the panic room. I will be safe in the panic room. So I run down the hall and my footsteps echo through the house and I reach my father's bedroom. It is a beautifully decorated prison cell, a barred in box with a sliding security barrier. I draw the steel door closed and insert the key into the lock, but the lock has been tampered with. It is broken, but I jiggle it back and forth as if I can fix it by desperate action. But despite, I can't fix it, and despite the heat of the day, my armpits fill with icy sweat and goosebumps prickle my skin. And a metallic click echoes through the house, and I press myself back against the wall with my hand to my mouth to stifle my scream. Don't let them know where you are. But it's just the grandfather clock stretching out in the heat of the day. It used to be a family joke how, when you least expected it, the clock would make a chirp as if to say, I'm here, and then it would go back to sleep. But still, I remain pressed back against the wall, my thoughts spinning. The panic room is broken, and what have I done by coming here? And I can hear my father's voice in my head. My girlie, what were you thinking? All alone? On the farm? Have you lost your mind? Well, what should I do, Pa? I say. Tell me what to do. And he does. But he asks me one final time if I really do want to stay. And I tell him I have no choice. This is my home too, I tell him. 
then fine, he says. We will deal with it. Worst case scenario, they will come and kill you in your sleep. They will rape you first, and maybe after, but by then you will be past caring. But you don't want to be killed in your sleep, do you? No, Pa, I don't. Then think, when, where will they come in? Let's start there. Remember, it is time to make a plan. Later that night, I sit in the dark waiting, and the world is utterly silent. If they come, they will enter via the kitchen because it is the easiest access point. And they will hunt me down in the house, me, a trapped rabbit, quivering with fear and knowing that I am about to die. I am inside the servants' quarters. I'm not in Isaac's room, but the one belonging to the children. The toys and clothes are old and broken and in bad shape. And I wonder what it must have been like to live in those rooms and look over at the main house and know there was all that luxury inside, all that unfairly distributed luxury that could so easily be taken. When wouldn't anybody deserve to take it after years of servitude, injustice and inequality? But the farm belongs to me and before me it belonged to my father. This is our land too. So I sit there pondering the ethics of the thing and I hope with all my heart that nothing will happen. I hope that the night will pass peacefully and that in the morning I will get the locksmith over and all of this will have been for nothing. But then I hear my father's voice, you know that's not the case, Cookie. You know how it goes. You haven't had your head in the sand all this time. I rub my hand over my face. I am exhausted and the rage is still there, but my body is worn out by my preparations and I shake out two bennies from an old exam stash I found <laughs> in my room and swallow them. I can't let myself fall asleep. And finally, they come. It's just after 1 a.m. and their shadows ease around the corner of the house and in spite of my preparations, my throat closes and I push back hard, breathe. You think your heart will burst, but breathe, in, out, breathe. This is real, this is happening. There are three men. They open the kitchen door and slip inside exactly as I predicted they would. But before they vanish into the darkness of the house, the security lights throw a spotlight on their faces. And to my horror, Isaac is one of the men. Yet another vicious betrayal in my life. Isaac. I don't recognize the other two. They're in their mid-thirties, strangers to me, and their faces are bare. They hadn't even worn balaclavas. They planned to kill me. And my mind is scrambling. I was so stupid to stay here. What did I think? That I was Schwarzenegger or Rambo? Perhaps I should abandon my foolish plan and run and hide. I can hide in the car. Maybe they'll believe that I've left. But then the bennies kick in and the red rage returns and I stand up. I won't take this lying down. I won't be a sitting duck or a quivering rabbit accepting my fate. I wonder how many of them have guns. I know the law. If I shoot them inside my house, it's manslaughter, regardless of the fact that they're in my house with the premeditated intent to rape and kill me. 
I creep silently across the sandy backyard, duck underneath the empty washing lines, and slip inside the kitchen door. I tiptoe down the hallway and strain to hear where the men are, and I'm satisfied to note they're exactly where I thought they would be. They're in Pa's bedroom, and their their torches are sweeping back and forth as they look for me. I swing into the bedroom, (coughs) flip up the light, and aim my gun, and the men turn towards me, shocked, off guard, blinking in the unexpected light, and I shoot two of them, quick succession, one after the other, the chest, the head, perfect aim and precision. They're both too surprised to do anything, and they drop to the floor. And I turn to Isaac. He's pleading for his life. He's on his knees now. He's holding his hands high, and he's crying. And I say, it's easy for you to beg me now, Isaac, but you plan to kill me. (laughs) Please, please, madam, don't. And I hesitate for a moment. This is Isaac, after all. I've known him my whole life. He was a young man when I was a child. He used to put the wheelbarrow in the shade of a tree on a hot day and fill it with water for me to sit in. He helped me with my pony when I was learning to ride, and he led me around while I clung to the saddle. He watched me grow from a toddler into a young woman, and he helped me dig the graves for my mother and my father. I always liked and trusted Isaac, so I lower the gun slightly, and he sees my dart and immediately takes advantage. He grabs the hammer that he's dropped, and he swings it at me wildly, and he catches me hard on the thigh and I wince at the white-hot pain, and I'm bent over trying to breathe through the burn, and Isaac raises the hammer using both hands this time, and I jump back, out of reach. You are going to kill me, Isaac, I say? Me? After all these years? And he looks at me, and I'm going to end the reading there, because maybe (laughs) you'll want to know what happened. That was wonderful. But, but we do know that you have resilient, resourceful heroines. So. <laughs> and you just heard Lisa DeNicolet's reading at a March 7th uh, for Anana author reading event. Um, and that was featuring International uh, Women's uh, Day. And... Uh, which was just a week ago today. And as uh, this reading, though, was the night before. And again, it was emceed by Elizabeth Green. And you will hear Elizabeth's reading uh, right after the top of the hour. Not enough time to get it in this hour uh, with the other things that I do need to air. So uh, that will follow at the top of the hour. And there was also a Q&A, a Q&A uh, that uh, followed the readings that evening. So tell you what, uh, let's do this thing I have to do, and I'll be right back. Friday evenings at 6 p.m. here on CFRC, listen to Saltwater Music, a show covering all musical genres from the East Coast of Canada. Celtic, of course, but also rock, jazz, blues, folk, and a lot more. I'm your host, Rob Carnell. Tune in to Saltwater Music Friday evening from 6 to 8 here on CFRC 101.9 FM. Or you can catch us on the web at www.cfrc.ca. And for our listeners out east, that's 7 p.m. Atlantic and 7.30 Newfoundland. Hey, 
Whatever you're going through, we're here for you. We are the Peer Support Center, a confidential and non-judgmental drop-in space where you can come to talk to a fellow peer about anything at all. We have been supporting students at Queens for at least 10 years now, and it wouldn't be the service we are today without the dedication and care of our amazing volunteers. We also wanted to thank you, Queens. Thank you for all the students for trusting us over the years with your stories and experiences and allowing us to help support you during your time here at Queens. University can be a challenging yet rewarding time, and we want students to know that we are here for them through the good times, the bad, and the in-between. Come stop by the Peer Support Center in JDUC Room 34. We are open seven days a week from noon to 10 p.m. Folk Everything every Saturday morning from 10 till noon on CFRC. Traditional folk, modern folk, future folk, and strange deviations from the norm. Hear the legacy of folk music and discover new favorites and forgotten classics on Folk Everything. Join me every Saturday morning at 10 for a romp through folk culture here on CFRC. Says Red to James, that's a fine motorbike. Walk Home is one of the services provided to you by the Alma Mater Society at Queen's University. Walk Home is a completely confidential and anonymous service where students will pick you up and walk you to any location within our extensive boundaries. We are located in the Lower Cayley of the John Deutsch University Centre. You can request a walk by dropping by the kiosk or by calling 613-533-9255 during our hours of operation. We are open every night from dusk till 2am, Sunday to Wednesday, or till 3am from Thursday to Saturday. During exam season, we are open until 4am. Last year, we completed over 10,000 walks, walking the equivalent distance of crossing the width of Canada and back. So whether you're feeling unsafe, want someone to walk with after a night at the library, or feel more comfortable walking downtown with someone, call Walk Home. If you have any questions about the service, please feel free to contact us by calling 613-533-9255 or by emailing walkhome at ams.queensview.ca. And you are listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. We are located in Lower Carruthers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce, and here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6 o'clock. We do stream live online as well at www.cfrc.ca. Now, I do have a few minutes here at the end of this hour uh, to... Uh, share a few i think i'll try to get to some calls in this hour because there's one brand new one and it's got a very short deadline here uh, but before i do that i wanted to say i hope you can stay tuned uh to the second hour uh, and uh, of the show today and hear uh, the again uh, rest of that uh, four author anana reading event that was tied to international women's day and in it, you will hear, again, uh, Elizabeth Green, who emceed that evening, and uh, also uh, the Q&A that followed, and then that will lead into some open mic readings from another event. So I hope you can stay tuned again for the second hour and catch all of that. Uh, just to remind you, you've been listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC, and uh, there is a, I should mention as well, briefly, that uh, finding a vo- each hour of finding a voice uh, each week is updated to my blog space for it shortly after I get home and uh, 
you can find it, and we'll remain there for four years, actually. You can find it at finding a voice on cfrcfm.wordpress.com. And I'll tell you what, let's go ahead and jump into this. Uh, I just became aware of this call for submissions. There's their own. It's got uh, ten day life uh, from today, I guess. So you have until March 26th at midnight. But uh, well, I guess you've got an 11 days. So there you go. That's a bit helpful, I guess. But uh, this just came about, and there's going to be. Well, let me tell you what it is for: emerging and student poets, and it's a call for submissions, obviously. Uh, for them. Uh, the Union Gallery, I'm going to read straight from their, uh, this is either a media release or it might be off of their uh, Facebook page. Anyway, uh, it says, the Union Gallery is hosting a poetry reading event on Wednesday, April 3rd from 6 to 7.30 p.m. in celebration of National Poetry Month, which is the month of April. And the gallery invites student and emerging poets to apply. Uh, it says also this year the League of Canadian Poets has declared National Poetry Month's theme to be nature. And uh, it says as well at the time of the poetry reading, uh, the student sculpture body, body positive, I'm sorry, the student sculpture show body positive will be exhibited in the gallery. Uh, like the works in the exhibition, nature reminds us of hope or resilience. And excuse me, fear in the spaces we occupy. And it says as well, as creators and consumers, we can sculpt the future of nature and how we will exist alongside it. And it says the event is therefore looking for work that broadly engage with these ideas and themes. The uh, deadline for submissions, again, is uh, March 26th, 2019 at midnight. Uh, they've got, it uh, looks like you can go, the application guidelines uh, can be found on their website. So just go to, uh, uh, I'm guessing it's www.uniongallery.queensu.ca. And it's got also, you can, it breaks it down, uh, slash current program, submission, submission, poetry, HTML. So there you go. That uh, even just getting on the website, I'm sure it'll be quite obvious since this uh, call is brand new and uh, will most likely even be on their homepage. It might also be on their Facebook page as well, so I would check that out, the Union Gallery. And I think I've got time for one more. It's a much longer timeline here, uh, but it's uh, Sequestrium uh, Literature and Art. Uh, and I'm going to read from theirs. Every year we run an experiment that, with experiment that, with the exception of an occasional heavyweight anthology, is generally left untouched by publishers. And what they're doing, I'm reading through it, uh, it says they're going to republish some un unsolicited literature. And so they have an award. It's called Our Editor's Reprint Awards. Uh, will award over $500 to writers of fiction, nonfiction, and poetry. Prose and poetry are judged separately with a first prize winner and a minimum of two runners-up per genre. And uh, it says, as always, our first obligation is uh, giving every submission the time and consideration it deserves. And uh, we reserve the right to close contest doors early in order to do so. Currently, they have a deadline of April 30th. 
Uh, but what they say is the short and long of it, get your work polished and submitted and don't dawdle about it. So what they're requesting is uh, uh, they're looking for republishing work that has already been published as I am reading this. Or am I confusing this with another call that was out recently? It looks to me like they're just looking for unsolicited uh, work. So I will correct this. If I'm wrong next week, I'll do a little more research. But you've got maybe until April 30th. So there you go. And I see it is now 5 o'clock. So welcome back to the second hour of today's show. Uh, It's uh, just a few seconds after, I guess. And you're listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. Again, we are located in Lower Carruthers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce, here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6 o'clock. And again, we do stream live online at www.cfrc.ca. And again, in this hour, uh, coming up... Uh, we will be continuing with that March 7th Inanna Authors Reading Event honoring uh, International Women's Day. And uh, you'll hear a reading by first uh, Elizabeth Green, again, the evening's MC, And then you will hear the Q&A following uh, the readings. Following that, uh, from... The Again, the January 8th and the Journey Continues Open Mic uh, reading event in that monthly series. Uh, you'll hear readings by Alyssa Cooper, Kinman, Eric Folsom, and Sasha Hill. And as I did in the first hour, the usual hourly announcement. Occasionally some poetry, spoken word, or music played on this show may contain strong language, but it's all played in its entirety with content unedited to honor the creative integrity of both the author and the piece. And uh, I will have again, in fact, maybe even a few more minutes at the end of this this hour uh, to uh, go through a few upcoming events, and there are several uh, coming up, especially next week, but uh, then the following week as well. So I want to get some of those. And uh, so let's just go ahead and jump back into that March 7th for an, an author reading event uh, that was honoring International Women's Day. And the fourth reader and the person emceeing it that evening as well. Here is Elizabeth Green. Uh, with her book, A Season Among Psychics. <laughs> okay. And I, you know, I know that Lisa is a very hard act to follow, but I always read last at local readings <laughs> just, you know, just in case the audience vanishes, <laughs> which, which they're not going to, you know, you're, you're not, you know. You're, okay. So I'm, I'm going to read um, a bit that I haven't read in Kingston before. And it's really got two parts. It's chapter 11, Eclipse of the Sun. So it's the Eclipse of the Sun, um, but it's also about um, people in this healing class finding their power symbols. So this, the center of this book is a healing course, and this chapter comes in the middle of the course. And you know, there's a lot of learning unfamiliar stuff in it. Mm-hmm. Eclipse of the Sun. An eclipse of the sun. I'd been aware of them, but I'd never really seen one. Either it had been cloudy, or I'd been studying. 
I thought the next one would be sometime in my 90s. I was not going to miss this one. I arrived in fairly good time, made a ginseng tea, and settled into my chair. Um, and then I'm skipping some. Um, Rosetta is the teacher, and she says, I want to do one more thing before we go out to wait for the eclipse. Sit back and close your eyes. We all did as we were told. What's the first thing that comes into your mind? I panicked. Again, I was sure I was doing it wrong. I emptied my mind and saw my big blue double column Chaucer, edited by F.N. Robinson, the Robinson Chaucer, with the oak leaves I'd put in it, the notes, the cards. If you held the oak leaves to the light, they still looked a little like red stained glass. <coughs> Time hadn't yet taken all the color out of them, or the book, which was cloth bound and faded. All right, said Rosetta, open your eyes. What did you see? Crystals, said James, especially my favorite large crystal. I promise I'll bring them in tomorrow. We'll believe it when we see it, said Vivian. I was in my kitchen, said Sharon, just about to start dinner. Robinson's Chaucer, I said. A magic wand, said Vivian, a real one with an emerald at the tip and a paintbrush. A red vacuum cleaner, said Andrea. What, the one we sold you? I was shocked. I love that vacuum cleaner. I'd hated it. It was so heavy, and it stood for all the times Henry had woken me up, and I'd had to go through the day terribly sleep-deprived. It was good that Andrea loved it. It's powerful, said Andrea. Lily dancing, said Elaine. A forest, said Deirdre, with deer in it. A white horse, said Talitha. I used to ride a lot. What you saw is your power symbol, Rosetta said. Now that you know it, you can visualize it when you need it. Of course, Judith would see a book. She said this without rancor. And Sharon would see the heart of her home. And James would see a crystal. Each of you remember your symbol so that you can use it. No wonder I felt so powerless without a book. I didn't hear the rest of what Rosetta was saying, but it all made perfect sense. Now, said Rosetta, get your sunglasses, and I'll get my prepared glass, and we'll go out on the balcony. I didn't bring sunglasses, said Vivian. I'd forgotten to tell her. I've got some extra, said Rosetta. The sun was shining. The trees still had some of their petals, although some were scattered on the ground. The birds were singing. It was a perfect May morning. Well, this is exciting, said James. It hasn't started yet, said Rosetta. <laughs> Open your hearts and be ready to receive. It's amazing to look down at Robin, said Talitha. They must be making their nests. Ever since I'd met Brian two years ago, I'd watched the birds and butterflies in the spring and thought, the world is coupled. Well, not really everyone. Vivian wasn't at the moment, not until she found her magician, though she could be if she wanted. Andrea wasn't, Elaine wasn't, James wasn't, Deirdre wasn't, Sharon was, Talitha was, though Rosetta thought she shouldn't be. Where did Rosetta get off? Rosetta herself had a husband with late-stage Alzheimer's and a boyfriend. We had seen him mowing the grass. I think it's getting darker, said James. In your dreams, said Vivian. It is getting darker, said Talitha. You're right, said Vivian, sorry. At first it was hardly perceptible, but now it was getting darker fairly quickly and colder. I rushed inside for my sweater. 
Vivian had her shawl wrapped, wrapped closely around her. It wasn't quite night, but it was pretty dark. The birds stopped singing. You can see why people used to worship the sun, said Deirdre. Anyone want to look at the sun through the treated glass, asked Rosetta. We all did. Keep your sunglasses on, Rosetta added, and don't look directly at it too long. It's amazing, said James, who of course went first, like the sun in an Egyptian crown. Beautiful, said Talitha. When it was finally my turn, I saw the dark disk of the moon obscuring the sun, the ring of fire surrounding it. I was inside a moment I had only known from pictures before. Don't look too long, said Rosetta, and I handed the smoky glass to Andrea. For those few moments, we stood in the footsteps of people who had lived before us, centuries ago, millennia ago, powerless in the dark, but also awed that day could turn so untimely into night. It's awesome, said Sharon, when it was her turn for the smoky glass. Yes, awe was the right word. You can see why the ancient Maya were so careful with their calendars, said Vivian, so they know when there were eclipses like this. Maybe also to remind us that our lives are small in the great circle of time. Can I have the glass, asked James. I don't know when I'll ever see this again. I think it's getting lighter, said Talitha. Give the glass back, said Rosetta. I don't want anyone going blind. Minute by minute, it got noticeably brighter. As the light returned, the birds started singing, and the robins went back to building their nest. We were all quiet. Someone famous will probably die, said Rosetta. It happens after comets, but also after eclipses. I don't want anyone to die, said Sharon. No one does, but the age is changing. Their time here is finished. We filed inside, silent, still in the spell of that darkness, leaving the restored light outside, but newly grateful for it. Thank you. So we'll now have a, a Q and A if you have questions, and maybe maybe the, maybe yeah maybe you should all go up there. And uh, that was Elizabeth Green uh, reading after emceeing the event and continuing to emcee uh, as she uh, gathered the other three authors together. So again, this was just a week and a night ago, March 7th. It was a foreign and author reading event uh, and honoring uh, International Women's Day. And uh, there was a very nice uh, Q&A event uh, that uh, she gathered uh, everybody back up to the front of the store for. And I'll tell you what, let's go ahead and just listen to that now. Mary, I'd like to ask you, I'm a Torontonian, and one of my rituals that I'll be doing tomorrow is going down Bay Street through the Marriott in past Holy Trinity, where as a child I actually saw a Christmas pageant there. And I'm just curious why you chose that thing, because I know it's a great center for the homeless and so forth. I'm just curious why you chose Why that. I chose that one? Yeah. Because that was the church the fellow suggested I set it in. There <laughs> I went there for a period of time yeah, many right. years ago. So. Yeah. It's a lovely church. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it was a good choice. And, it's, yeah. Yeah. and I remember you taking me to lunch there. And yeah. <laughs> 
I would be curious if any of you see a thread among your works, then any of you can choose to answer this, or all of you. <laughs> of what we read, or, or not? The work, or what you read. Well, they're all feminists. Feminists without mm. being abrasive, huh? <laughs> <laughs> well, sometimes yeah. we're abrasive. Well, <laughs> <laughs> that's not abrasive, that's murderous. <laughs> There's a difference. Yeah, that's true. Well, I think um, like our work, you know, a lot of publishers and bookends are very genre-based. They're very like, this is the shape of a home, this is the way the book must fit in. But I think something that I love so much about Inanna, and I think where we're really blessed is, Inanna does not pigeonhole books in that same way. So you can have a book that is like literary crime, or you can have a book that has elements of noir. I think that all of our books have something unusual about them that, you know, sets them apart from the pure genre books. And I think we have that in common. And I think that we, ex we express that our visions in our books and aren't constrained into being cookie cutter. I think that's a good point. Yeah, yeah. I think Thank so you, too. Lisa. Yeah. <laughs> I, think, I think they're all because I've worked yeah. in their ways. Go ahead. No, because I've published with genre publishers, and I, and I feel that with uh, and Nana, it's more possible to blur the edges. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Any other questions? Questions or, uh, about writing too, yeah, because right. I think some of us have also taught writing, and so so I know that people who come to meetings are often closet or not so closeted writers. So though we're also happy to answer questions about craft. <coughs> Andrea? Not a writer, but lots of, um, <coughs> lots of detail, but like not too much. How do you decide to keep up detail? Like keep in or keep that? out? What's the editor slashes some of it. <laughs> 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 yeah. editors, but I'm sure that you, know, you had something to do with it too. Yeah. Except for the red shoes, that doesn't count. <laughs> no, that doesn't count. I find it really difficult. I overwrite. Like the Witch Doctor's Bones, so your average book is like 95,000 words. And when the first draft of The Witch Doctor's Bones that I insanely submitted to publishers was 220,000 words. Yes, it was ridiculous. Because of all this detail, I was, a lot of it was about the, the sand um, in Namibia, and I kept finding these fascinating facts that I just, and it was the detail, and then it was the detail of what people were wearing, and the weather, and the birds, and because I love being there, right, so I, I wanted to hang out forever in that book, and I poured the whole thing into it, so I, I overwrite, and now I, I tried, you know, this whole thing, is it adding to the story, yeah. is it adding to the story, and is this something that appeals to me personally, or will it interest someone else, and I actually, at the back of the room, I have very good Uber reader, which is my husband, and he's really bad. She's like, look, no one's going to care about this. And he, you know, so he says sometimes I make him sound too brass, but the fact is, that's the best thing because I need to know because I'm like, oh, but I love that, and he's like, yeah, but no one else will care. So, <laughs> so it's very important to have readers as well who like weigh in and go, look, it has to, has, and of course Luciana as well. Sometimes I'll take something out, and then I, Luciana will say, you know, I was wondering about. It. I'm like, yes, I have that piece. Yeah. 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 Yes. Yeah, no, I've I, had that experience too. 
Well, I think there's overwriters and there's underwriters, and I'm also on the overwriting side. And I think that, you know, we don't want to cut things because they're also good. They're yeah. good. The writing is good. So, so that's when we really need our first readers to say, it's a beautiful passage and the descriptions are gorgeous. And you just have to cut it out and set it aside and there will be a time you can use it in something else. But right now it's dragging the story. Yes. Right? So exactly. You need exactly. <laughs> the audience in the back. It's a process <coughs> of learning yes. that, right? I just got something back that was too long and I hadn't looked at it for a year. So when the reader made comments, I thought, oh yes, oh yes. And I went through and I cut out 10 chapters in different spots. I couldn't have seemed to do that before. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. That's a lot. I know, I know. It went, well, it probably started at the length of yours. Because <laughs> it had another revision that took out 30,000 words, and this was another 10 chapters. So on the subject of the craft of writing, how long does it take to write a book? <laughs> Everybody's if, since you're everybody. multiple authors, you could say, well, my shortest was three months or whatever, and my longest was 10 years. I my mean, I don't know. My longest was 40 years. Mm -hmm. okay. <laughs> you know, you do other things in between. And you're yeah, shorted. You do in the sense that you start it and then set it aside. Yeah, I think my longest was 20 years, and my shortest was two. But I think the long ones, you may write two other books in that oh, yeah. time, right? Yeah, so, oh, exactly. So it's yeah. not like you were only working on the one thing yes. for 40 years, yeah, no, right? Yeah. And I think that, you know, there's some things that take that long to be the book they need to be, right? That there's... there's well, you have to live long enough to. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, there's there's certain pieces that it takes you that long to understand what it is you want yeah, to say. Yeah, probably. Right? So. But, as, but I am grateful to have lived so long because my first one wasn't published till I was 70. <laughs> That's impressive. Mm -hmm. But Lisa, you, you write oh. oh, yeah, I, um, yeah, I, my you first, oh, oh, okay. oh, well, mine, mine, um, took about 20 years, huh? I just wondered how many hours you write per day. It depends on yeah, the day. it depends. I've written as many as six or seven, but when I retired from other work, um, I wasn't doing much, and a friend said, why don't you write for an hour a day? And I thought, oh, that's kind of crazy. But I won't tell her that. I'll try it. And it's cumulative. I think what you need is a dis some kind of discipline, whatever length of time yeah. it Carol is. Shields wrote for an hour a day, yeah? Mm -hmm. you, know, you, you don't really have six or seven hour writing days if you have other obligations, huh? That's very true. I mean, I think I tend to be, and I admit this, I won't, I, I'm obsessive. So, like, if I have the time off in between, like, freelance, I write, like, 12 hours a day. I'll just, that's all I do. But it's really, you know, I, I, I don't get out of my pajamas. I don't move. It's really unhealthy. But it's just, that's the thing. So, like, the, the shortest book I wrote was... I got let go from a job and I was really angry and hurt, so I wrote the book in 12 days, and that was like 80,000 words. So, yeah, that was insane. That was probably 
a record, I think, <coughs> for me. But, but, but the thing is, there's something, and that, I think there's like an obsessive compulsion then, because I will, I'll say like, you know, you can feel my hips getting stiff and, and should go for a walk, but I can't. So, mm. you know, so it's actually better for me when I am working, because mm. it, it forces me to do something. Like, breaks, yes, so. love, exactly, because otherwise I just <laughs> kind of wouldn't. So. I used to be able to do that, but now I can't. And I think it's partly physical that my body just gets too restless, that I used to be able to sit in front of the computer for 10 hours, and now I just have this resistance. Right? Which is so better. Much <laughs> healthier. <laughs> too, but, but I used to get more time. <laughs> so yeah. maybe oh. a question for you. Is your book ever going to be published in the the one book, um, the Nearly Girl, was an audio book. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure about Rotten Peaches. Yeah, so I'd love, to, uh, I'd love to listen to. Oh, oh we'll we'll mention that. Yes, yeah. thank you. Yeah. We'll mention that to our publisher. Thank you. Uh, yeah, actually, a lot of work went into an audio book. Um, I, I didn't realize, you know, it was quite a lengthy process. I thought it would be quite a simple thing. But then, you know, we had actors who then auditioned for the thing and then even the recording, and then they had to splice the thing together so that there were no errors. So it took a lot more work than I, than I thought. I thought it would be quite a simple thing. Someone sit down and read it. That's why they're so expensive. Very expensive, yeah, very expensive. But you're dramatic enough. You could read it. You're very dramatic. Yeah. Yeah. So I could just read the book. Yeah. Only yeah. take you twelve hours. <laughs> there we go. Maybe we should have the opportunity yes. for people to buy books. Yes. And they can talk to you when they all talk amongst themselves anyway. Okay. So let let's have one more hand for our visiting audience. And with uh, Ursula Flug, Mary Lou Dickinson, Lisa DeNicolitz, and uh, Elizabeth Green fielding questions and adding other points, you just heard the Q&A that followed the readings at the March 7th Foreign and Author Reading Event featuring, uh, featuring honoring, celebrating International Women's Day. And we're going to switch gears a bit now and move into four readings uh, from the January 8th and the Journey Continues monthly open mic reading in that series. And uh, been working on this for the last three or so, maybe four weeks at this point, but we're going to get four more of them in. I think there are a couple left yet. Maybe we'll catch them next week. But up first from it that night, here is Alyssa Cooper. Next, Alyssa Cooper, let's bring her up. I'm going to hog the mic a little bit. Um, I have a quick announcement. Uh, the Skeleton Park Arts Festival has spent the last year and a half, two years, working on a feature film. Uh, about poetry in Kingston, and it's called Who is Bruce Kaufman? <laughs> it's premiering in March as part of the Kingston Canadian Film Festival, but the tickets and passes actually go on sale the end of this month, on January 28th. Uh, so if you go to the kingcanfilmfest.ca, I think it is, you can order your passes at the end of the month. 
Uh, if you want to know more about the movie, it's netlify.whoisbrucekaufman.com, or you can search Who Is Bruce Kaufman on Facebook, and all the information's there as well. So that's my little blurb about that. Um, so the stuff I'm going to read tonight, uh, last, well, this month, earlier this month, uh, I went on my first, like, real grown-up vacation ever. Uh, so we spent three days driving across seven states to get to Florida to get on a boat to hit four countries in four days after that. And I brought this with me, and I wrote down everything, so I'm going to read some of that for you today. Uh, so this first one is called Morning at Half Moon Cay. Uh, Half Moon Cay was the second island we visited uh, in the Bahamas. Today we anchor in open water, this island too small for the modernity of ports. Clouds below up from the horizon, soft and heavy, whipped like cream, a break in the monotony of blue, and from the skiff that promises shore, I can see fault lines through the water. Shadow and texture, lights and shape, a topographical map of my longing. On the crescent coast, shoes are abandoned, shirt is abandoned, I am sun and sand and skin and the unexpected sight of palm trees. The coast is pure, soft and cold, dotted with red reminders of being sea. The glimmer of sun through water hypnotizes, blinds, light writing stories on my bare skin, abstract and bright and beautiful as ocean reaches out to sky. Gold, and then green, and then blue, and then purple, where the water kisses the clouds. Water is cold on my feet, colder at least than I expected, schools of fish around my ankles, silver like knife blades suspended, a hive mind fleeing and returning, a play, a dance, choreography that I didn't have time to learn. Dead man floats so that I can see the sun through my eyelids, igniting my blood, gifting me fire, and I can hear the sea whispering secrets into the shell of my salt-clogged ears. This ancient language desperate to be heard, all the things I've wanted so long to touch and see and taste, close enough now not just to hold, but to devour. And I am here, and I am floating, and I am waiting. So the next one, I didn't give a title to. Uh, I wrote it on, well, I wrote it yesterday, but it's about Grand Turk, which was the third island we visited um, of the Turk and Caicos Islands. It's almost time to make our way back to the ship, and we are stretching every moment. We've toured the island, swam the ocean. We've collected sand in glass jars and coral and eager hands, and now, the sun is slipping low, holding a sweating bottle of Caribbean beer, watching the sky burn yellow and then orange, he says, I wish we could take a picture. I reach for my camera, but this isn't what he means. I know it's not what he means. He means he wants to take the moment with him. He wants to be able to do it again and again, this taste, this warmth. He wants to remember in a way that humans can't remember, wants to know that he will not lose color will not lose smell. He wants this moment, but this moment is not a handful of sand. There's no way to take it with us. So I snap a photo, one of him and one of the beach, and then I lean back into my chair. I watch the sun slide down beneath the horizon, tucking itself into bed. 
I watch the fire dance on the surface of the water. I taste salt. I taste yeast. I swear that I will remember. And I get ready to forget. So the last one I'm going to do, um, after we did the tour of the actual islands, it took us a full day to get back to Florida, so we had just a full day on the open ocean, and that's what this one's about. It's called A Day on the Atlantic. <coughs> no sun on this last day. A reminder of what lies ahead, as if the Atlantic longs to ease my transition from Caribbean womb and back to life. A water birth on a boat deck, placenta, of salt. Instead, there is rain on the horizon, like I have smudged the dusty clouds with my thumb. I can feel wetness in the air, not the newness of sea spray, but the brand of damp that my landlocked bones know well. Rainbows drop from the ceiling of clouds, unobscured, a band of seven colors dripping into the ocean and past it. Surely there is treasure beneath those waves. Surely there are gifts in the coral, for what is the love of a man compared to the love of the ocean, who took me in her arms without condition or consequence, who turned a key in my heavy lungs and offered me splendors in return, offered me worlds I had never imagined, colors I had never seen, secret countries and hidden dimensions, the ocean, who made me new, made me clean, and coming home has never been so hard. Melissa Cooper, let's give her another hand. And you just heard Alyssa Cooper from the January 8th and the Journey Continues open mic reading in that monthly series. And uh, before we move uh, to the three others that will be airing this afternoon, uh, I'm going to break for a station ID, but I have to honestly say, if I would have known that was still in there all the way back from January, what she said at the start, I probably would have taken it out, because so, it's already long gone. So anyway, let's do this, and I'll be right back. Do you like to dance? Tune into The Hustle with DJ Bolt every Friday night between 11 p.m. and midnight. Where you'll hear all the newest dance, electronic, French touch, booty bass, ghetto, deep, and tech house remixes and more. Let The Hustle take you to midnight and beyond at 11 p.m. on 4 to the Floor Fridays. Only on CFRC 101.9 FM. It means that people can get daily, every day, a different way of looking at the world. Not just what the corporate media want you to see, but a different picture, a different understanding, but a different picture, a different understanding. Not only can you hear it, but you can participate in it. You can add your own thoughts, you know, and you can learn something and so on. Well, that's the way, uh, well, that's the way, uh, well, that's the way uh, people become uh, human, you know. That's the way you become human participants in a, in a social and political system.
This is the Opera. Hello, I'm David Smith, and I'd like to invite you to explore the exciting world of opera with me every Sunday at 11 a.m. here on CFRC. We'll listen to opera excerpts, full-length operas, and profiles of artists past and present. Please join me every Sunday from 11 till 1 for This is the Opera. Kingston Community House for Self-Reliance, widely known as 99 York, has for 30 years been providing a central, low-cost meeting space for groups that allow like-minded people to come together to learn from one another, to share resources and trade skills. The goal of this house is to act as an integral part of the neighborhood in which it is located. On a typical evening, an autism caregiver relief group will be at 99 York, together with a 12-step organization and a transgendered support group while a social justice and homeschooling group may be booked in the following day. The community house is also available for less official functions, such as barbecues, birthday and office parties, and other social gatherings. We are proud to also serve the Queen's community. For more information, visit 99 York Street in Kingston. Go to www.99york.org, email info at 99york.org, or call 613-542-1136. And you are listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. We are located in Lower Carruthers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce, here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6. And we do stream live online at www.cfrc.ca. Okay, let's go back into the January 8th, and the journey continues open mic reading in that monthly series uh, and now for the past the, over a year held at the Elm Cafe up next from it here is Kinman up next Kinman let's bring him up did you see such a crowd um I believe I need to feel local for poetry now. Names, location, all yours, mortality, that short time which you could identify yourself among others and by yourself. This first is on a plane, cheap flight, going back to home, Canada, in the the kid had witnessed, as I did, the spray to the ice, a 727 with 124, just two toilets, no room for our carry-ons. Shoes on the floor, now a ghost. My shade, the brim of a hat. Lady Scott from Winnipeg, glad to have the eyes. Brothers, Randolph and John, named for Western stars. So I work a habit fading away as time with church, with wife near, Janice on the outside, Sean behind, Phillips two row down with tears from Chimuk. A sunrise 
blaze out a fire ring, monsters in the clouds, the way they twist above the sleeping earth, too light for any human to be so transformed. Against a wooden sofa back, in design Chinese, I end. It's red cushion more like Art Nouveau than a peasant street. Uh, this second concerns that guy who fought my time as a West Indian, Derek Walcott. This is about his woman, wife, two children. And uh, this light upon a poem in Normandy, where he sort of uh, tried to identify love beyond divorce. Lizzie, his eldest daughter, <coughs> call him a friend. I'm going to skip the preamble and just get on to the Walcott woman. It was late when I met the Walcott woman at home, with Annie, my excuse, from Australia, in the valley ringing with Derek's words. Anna flashed by, a towel head, voicing sweet a hello, a rosy face later with a smile and goodbye, seated and ready, Margaret and Liz. On the table, cuts of Torrance rules I brought with me, my thank you for time with those dear to Derek, accounts I treasure as time with a kite. This rain, as I struggle to find more, brings a peace and cool. To recall Derek writing of Anna swimming, his mother with him at poolside quiet. Clearly, with those he loved and no longer can, are his words. With mine, I'm now prepared to journey as he once did. Uh, this last set is yeah, kind of political. It's on 911, and the last is titled Shades of Wernicke. I hope I pronounced that correctly. So much is outside that can prompt a pen that it becomes you to question what is fair and make what was an accident a tragedy, or what could be a lesson, something to forget. Like poetry, such incidents rattle the senses, and the impact goes to the heart, stirring their joy at being still, or a sorrow at what was once whole. So the power is damaged, and you bruise. The World Trade Center tower is gone. The list goes on with the things that should last, and the days with you continue somehow. How your small accident becomes the world's parallels what you permit of the world. And my last, Shades of Guernica. Forgotten, weapons of mass destruction. Briex, Godsman. Two old Chinese executed for tainting milk. Suicides twisted to absorb greed. An amnesty where the cost is too much for the few dead, with settlement to let the rich walk away free. A family left alone with one dead. How can those with happy homes, great skills, peddle death and grief, sleep while the missiles scream hell to babies and kids, never thought of the world so destroyed? It is not just a screw holding the metal sheets in place. When you cheer on your troops, celebrate victories, it is a soul that feeds on bones and blood. My print of Guernica rests on a site behind a door. I'm happy to leave there its horror 
of man, God man. Kid man, let's give him another hand. And you just heard Kin Man from the January 8th and the Journey Continues open mic reading in that monthly series. Up next in it, here is Eric Folsom. Up next, Eric Folsom. Let's bring him up. Hi, thanks. Um... I will open with the translation of the poem of Jean Cocteau, which has been my habit lately, I know. Uh, and then I'll finish up with original stuff that I've revised, but I'll pass it off on you anyway, because who cares if you've heard it before. Um, so uh, this is a little poem about um, language uh, and, and how it is uh, human agency in the world, how we shape the world with language. Um, Cocteau's title is Rouge. And in my own strikingly original fashion, I have translated that as red. That fell flat. <laughs> red. Red, scarlet red you are because I name you so. I name your brilliant anger, your flames of sharp desire, and stripped of all its value would be the diamond's fire. Without human language that certifies the glow, Lovely words immobile, you're moved in every sense. Threads of grammar by my touch made more loose or tense. Diamonds are by gold enthroned. The eye enthrones red. But coronations have no sway until the words are said. This is about growing up and the games we play. Relievio, the little hellions we were always running. Stopping and starting, red light, green light, playing freeze tag in backyards and driveways, up and down our marginally idyllic summer town, a dull railroad suburb, climbing the leafy hills, draped on either side of black pointer tracks, spanned by the small gray footbridge under which tough kids smoked cigarettes and spat at broken glass. We were sneakered avengers swinging from ropes tied to unsafe trees and failed orchards. Rampaging tangles of knotweed and nightshade, we slashed the afternoons with green whittled sticks, swore true allegiance to games of Simon Says, Mother May I, giant steps and hide and seek after dark urgent fireflies looping and blinking in the air till someone's distant mother called someone's name. Anything was better than going home to our parents, whose cool, bland judgments we internalized. Homes of leather belts and tongue-lashing yardsticks, tobacco and alcohol, fish sticks and lightning rods. We preferred the dark drums of our blue jeans, the grass-stained knees, our unstructured feelings for the slow walk home, swimming under street lights, our grimy, sweaty skin cooling in the night air. 
Red Rover, Red Rover, send Sandy right over. Send Corky, send Stuart. Send Robin, send Jill to break through our lines or be caught in our arms or we caught in theirs if their hearts are stronger. The spell-binding nets of each other's adolescence. Ungendered, pre-sexual, primed for endless feuding, for shoving and jeering, for teasing without cease, then racing for safety, alley-alley and free. Simon says, don't ride your motorbike into a tree. Simon says, don't get caught in the undertow. One, two, three, statue. Hold your breath and your friends. But holding is cheating, I hosey. No fair. Time grabs our shirt fronts and punches our eyes. We grapple and clasp, taste iron and salt. The wind roils the treetops like surf in a storm. Somebody chases someone, and we all disappear. And this last thing is called uh, Perfectly Straight. Um, anybody see Love, Simon? Okay, well, all right, this is sort of, this is like being gay in high school 50 years ago. It's not like Love, Simon. <laughs> Except that it is like Love, Simon, because <laughs> you don't know anything. Oh, and a warning, there's a depiction of homophobia, homophobia in the poem. Perfectly straight. Two teenage boys sitting opposite on a bed, holding guitars and practicing something. Your fingers reached for new chords you'd found. I chimed in on the chorus, touch me, heal me. Hands somewhat larger than mine, exploring places in the music where I tried to follow. Awkward in movement, shoulders punched forward, the sort of person who moved as if they didn't know quite how big they were. And yet I saw you throw a baseball and make it curve like magic, put my vigilance at ease, and pull music out of six strings with humbucking pickups, teen clumsiness, masking, civility, and poise. A local kid once mistook your generosity for open-minded charity in the varieties of love. His impolitic suggestions were met with heated anger. By Monday afternoon, the whole school knew, and the balance of the year was mob humiliation. I hope he was happier after he left town. But cautious, weird me kept my eyes on your fingers. Those long, blunt hands, and I remember your voice, er, ungainly, yet kind, held no trace of self-conscious ego. I learned to harmonize, learned what not to say. The both of us perfectly straight, I thought then. P.S. I was wrong about me. Was I right about you? Very wholesome. Let's give him another hand. And you just heard Eric Folsom from the January 8th and the Journey Continues open mic reading in that monthly series. Up next in it, or from it, and will be the final reading now there today, here is Sasha Hill. 
Up next, Sasha Hills, bring her up. and take on the world with courage. That fire in your belly on some days, just a spark. Some days a blaze so bright the sun is blinded by your brilliance. You are one in 400 trillion. 400 trillion chance of you being here today and you have gifts that the world needs. In small ways, you can change your life right in front of you. First, you need to fill yourself with love before you can give it away. I'm talking about that voice in your head who whispers, you can't do it. The one that says stop before you even try and it will not be silenced without practice. You are worthy for this world. This world needs you. On days that are so dark and so full of chaos, light that fire of courage. And you will stand steady as the storms of life pass. You will not be swept away by ever-growing forces that want you to break down and follow the flood. You will stand tall. You will face the world because you are alive. You are here. You are a God-ordained miracle. And if you want to say this out loud or in your head with me, it feels really good. So, I am here. I am alive. And I am a God-ordained miracle. Thank you. Sasha Hill, let's give her another hand. And you just heard Sasha Hill again from the January 8th, and the journey continues open mic reading in that monthly series. Again, now held for a little bit over years at the Elm Cafe. And as mentioned, she was the final poet uh, from it all air today. And I briefly mentioned this before. There's still two readings left to air in it. And from a string of them, I've been playing the last, I believe, three weeks. I hope to get the last two into next week's lineup. But I do have a couple of events that I want to air next week. So I, there might still be room, though, to work them in. So we'll see how it goes. But either was too long to air today. And I did want to spend a few minutes uh, to share some upcoming events. 
and there are a lot of them, as is the rule here in Kingston. I believe I counted five upcoming events this week that are lit or art-related, and that's all. those are just simply the ones I know. And then there are, I believe, another four the week after. So we'll try to get through as far as I can. Uh, and uh, I believe this was excerpted from their Facebook event notice, but it's an open mic night hosted by Queen's University English DSC. And it says, quoting them, Open Mic Night, we welcome all styles of performance, be it poetry, short story, uh, music, comedy, or anything else you can come up with. Whether you want to brave the stage or just come and support your fellow English students, we hope to see you there. And so there is a sign-up sheet. Uh, You know what I'm going to do is give you, uh, yeah, and it's kind of a short one for a change, I think. Uh, No, it's a long number. Just go to, it's in Facebook. It's going to happen, I should tell you that first. Tuesday uh, evening, uh, March 19th from 7 to 9 p.m., going to be held at the Grad Club. Uh, I think everybody knows where it is, but if you don't, 162 Berry Street in Kingston. So just go to... uh, Queen's University English DSC and uh, type in also open mic. Uh, They probably also have their own page. And uh, so, but either of those should get you that event. Uh, The next, uh, this is a monthly series. Uh, The next in a poetry prose sharing group monthly series. Uh, It's a third Wednesday, happens the third Wednesday of each month. It's a series in the same location each month and is facilitated by N. Graham. Uh, the location is the Kingston Unitarian Fellowship. Uh, they come in the side door that is at 206 Concession Street. It happens Wednesday afternoons from March on March 20th. Well, it's the third Wednesday of the month. Yeah, so Wednesday afternoon, March 20th from 2 to 4 p.m. And... Uh, trying to see they call it a very laid-back reading they you just come and talk about uh, uh, it says anyone interested in writing or reading and prose our reading prose uh, let me try this again welcomes anyone interested in writing or reading poetry and prose and or prose uh, participants should bring their own writing or something they've read and appreciated and present that uh, they, a bit of feedback, and so it just sounds like it, it's actually billed as a quite laid-back and usually fun event. So there you go. Also on, is this the same evening? Yes. Wednesday, March 20th from 6 to 8 p.m. It's a video screenings. It's going to be student shorts uh, at Union Gallery will be uh, uh, screened. It says from there probably Facebook notice. Anyway, this is quoted. No, it's from their media release. It says, please join Union Galleries. We welcome Queen's student filmmakers for a video screening event. Each film is less than 10 minutes in length and presents the diverse creative visions of the filmmakers. And uh, I believe you will find it on Union Galleries' uh, Facebook page as well. So go to that. It's going to be held again at the Union Gallery. Wednesday, March 20th from 6 to 8 p.m. And uh, also on March 20th, it's a busy day. 
Uh, after that, uh, you can catch uh, the Undergraduate Review Presents Art Fest, and it's a publication launch, vendors, and live music. And this is taken from their Facebook event notice. Uh, it says, we are proud to announce the launch of our 31st edition of the Undergraduate Review at Art Fest 2019. Come unwind at the Grad Club to wrap up the 2018-2019 school year and celebrate the amazing artist who has contributed to our publication. It says here, all ages until 8.30 p.m. only, 19 plus for the rest of the night. Uh, it says our headlining act is Saf Decaf. And they're on it at 9.30. Uh, this is going to be Wednesday evening, March 20th, from 7 to 11 p.m. It, too, at the Grad Club, 162 Berry Street. I know you can go uh, to Facebook and find the event page, The Undergraduate Review Presents Art Fest, or something like that. Enough words in there will take you straight to that. And then on Saturday, March 23rd, Kingston Arts Council, their Equity Principles in Action panel and Q&A. That uh, says they're going to have a dynamic panel discussion featuring three invited, reader, re, three invited speakers from Toronto. Nikki uh, Shafeula uh, with the Amy Project. Kevin A. Ormsby with plural, uh, Cultural Pluralism for the Arts Ontario and Sin uh, Roseboom with, uh, with uh, Tangled Art and Disability. It says the goals of the event to build community ties, share resources, reflect on our understandings and uh, approaches to inclusion and in here inspiring real world examples of how equity principles can be implemented into arts practices. This is going to be held on Saturday, March 23rd from 1 to 4 p.m. at the Malting Tower at the Tet Center, uh, which is uh, located at 370 King Street West. And uh, let's see. I actually made it through next week's uh, counting uh, next Saturday evening, so I might be announcing that event again next Friday. And I believe I'm going to run out of time, so I'm just going to stay, stop it right there, because I, before I actually leave, I want to thank you for tuning in today and take time to do this. And to let you know that you've been listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. We are located in Lower Carruthers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce, and I'm here every Friday afternoon uh, from 4 to 6 o'clock. We do stream live online as well at www.cfrc.ca. And want to remind you that each hour of this show each week is uploaded, uploaded to my blog space for it. Uh, shortly after the show ends, just give me time to get home and get it done. And uh, that is the blog space for it is finding a voice on cfrcfm.wordpress.com. As always, just one word. Uh, these will remain there for four years. And uh, uh, this is also this show is also being podcast as well. So if you go to uh, the station's website, www.cfrc.ca, and go into the podcast list, you'll find it there. So uh, that's one more option to listen to this show for those weeks that you might not be able to hear it live. So there you go. And... Uh, 
I do hope you can stick around because coming up uh, right after this show, right after I've got a brief message that'll pop in uh, just ahead of it, but coming right up after that, uh, stay tuned for two hours of East Coast music in a show called Saltwater Music, uh, hosted by Rob Carnell. Again, that's at the top of the hour. And again, thanks so much for tuning in today. I hope you all have a really beautiful week. Catch you here next week. This podcast is produced in collaboration with CFRC.ca in Kingston, Ontario. CFRC is located on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. Infrastructure support for the CFRC podcast project is provided by the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science. For more information or to get involved in podcasting, visit podcasts.cfrc.ca.